0: Uh, That way nobody bugs me after what's the title of the sermon, because I usually don't know. But this one is entitled, Pentecost Count Clarified, and in parentheses, Made Simple. Now this has been an issue that people have complicated way beyond what is necessary, and we have a scripture that talks about the simplicity that is in Christ. So, there has to be a way to count Pentecost correctly according to Scripture. Now, God very clearly gives instructions to count, and He addresses how to count, but people still get confused about how to do it. Now, let's consider a premise to begin with. If God gives us instruction to do something is he not bound by giving that instruction to show us or tell us how to do what he has told us to do is he, is he so incompetent that he would give us instruction and then not give us the requisite information to do it as he said. I think we'd all have a higher regard for God than that. Uh, do we, can we have the lights on? It was bright enough in here till the sun went behind a cloud, and now it's a little bit dark for reading. <clears throat> anyway, Leviticus 23 has been used... Uh, to, to do the count, and it has been taken many different ways. It does say in there that you are to begin the count after a Sabbath. And there's where the confusion essentially starts, because nobody seems to be able to determine which Sabbath to count from. So some people count from the first day of Unleavened Bread, thinking that that's the Sabbath that is being addressed, the Jews always come up with a fixed date for Pentecost, which is Sivan 6, no matter which day of the week it falls on. Various ones in the Church of God uh, count from the weekly Sabbath before the Days of Unleavened Bread of the Passovers on a Saturday night, which it was this week. Others count from the Sunday in that case, which is the last day of unleavened bread, and that causes the wave sheaf to fall outside the days of unleavened bread. So you can't have it both ways. You will either have a Sabbath that is outside the days of unleavened bread, just prior to the start of them, in order to have the wave sheaf always with unleavened bread, or you will have... Always the Sabbath within, but the wave sheep will always fall without in that particular case, which happens some years as it did this year. Now, an argument has been made for consistency. We should consistently use the Sabbath within no matter when it makes the wave sheep fall. Now, that's one way to be consistent. There is another way to be consistent, and that is that the wave sheaf always fall within the days of unleavened bread, no matter which Sabbath it is. So which has to be consistent? Wave sheaf always within the days of unleavened bread, or Sabbath always within the days of unleavened bread? That's the question. Either would be consistent in terms of what you're doing. God has to give the right answer. now if the question is not answered in Leviticus 23 along with a parallel scripture which is Joshua 5 then the Bible does not answer it because it's the only places that it is mentioned so if God be God and he is and he gives enough instruction for us to know his mind on the matter, then we have to find it there because it's the only place that is it is discussed. Okay? Now there is an assumption that often is made, and we're going to find that it is a, an assumption founded on sand. Now, there's been a paper going around a bit that says you can't base a doctrine on sand. It has to be on the facts from the Bible. I fully agree with that. And that's what we're going to address. But an ass- a huge assumption is made by a lot of people who try to figure this out in Leviticus 23. They say that the count has to begin from the Sabbath within the Days of Unleavened Bread. And they say that the Bible says that. I ask you, where? Show me a place. You can't. It is not there. There is not a verse anywhere in this context that says you must count from the Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. You cannot find it. It is not there. And yet anyone who gets into this doctrine, or many of them, say that. They make an assumption, and I am going to prove to you today with Scripture, that it does not always count from the Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. By example in the Bible. Now, please listen as I speak, but in the meantime, if your mind is wanting to wander, see if you can find a verse that says that it has to be from the Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. It isn't there. All right, let's go into this and let's see what God says. There are a lot of peripheral issues that come up, and sometimes people focus on what they didn't do, or what, by other scriptures, they think they couldn't have done, or assume a lot of things, rather than focusing on what was the exact instruction, and later, what did they actually do? That's what counts. Not what you and I imagine, or what we might try to pull from somewhere else, but what was the instruction, and was it followed? Now let's start with this. Joshua was a very faithful servant of God. He took Moses' place, because Moses couldn't go into the land. And God magnified Joshua there in Joshua 4, just prior to them going in. He had magnified Moses in the eyes of the people a great deal by parting the Red Sea. He did the same thing with Joshua by backing up the Jordan River to show that he was working through Joshua. So, the people feared Joshua in much the same way they had feared Joshua. Uh, Moses, because of what God had done through that man. So the point I'm leading to is this. Joshua and Caleb were the two most faithful men in Israel under Moses. They gave the good report. God used Joshua later mightily. Not before he was magnified before them, but afterward, mightily. So, would Joshua have been tuned in to what God told them to do when they came into the land? I think that should be pretty self-apparent. The man was very careful to do what God said. So the leadership that Israel had at that point would have been very careful to do all they could to do whatever God had instructed. I wanted to establish that. They didn't have some willy-nilly flake leading them into the promised land that God was not working through and would not have led to obedience as they went in. I think that's an important premise to consider before we get into the details of this. Now, understand, too... About the counting of the holy days, all of them. Every holy day except Pentecost is on a fixed day of the month. It is not they are not on a fixed day of the week. Abib 14 can fall on any day of the week. Uh, the seventh month, first day for trumpets can fall any day of the week, as can atonement and feast of tabernacles. Because of the cycle of the moon being 29 or 30 days, it is not an equally divisible thing. So, when the new moon occurs and you begin the count uh, of the month, uh, the 14th of Abib can come any day of the week. So, they don't float in that sense. Now, conversely, Pentecost always has to fall on the same day of the week. Always on a Sunday. It can't float through the week. Now it can float within the month. You count fifty from Passover, so it can be a different day of the month, depending on when the Passover came. Or no, when did I say that right? I'm not sure that's exactly what I meant to express. But you do have to count it, that's the point, because it doesn't fall on a particular day of the month, not Sivan 6. You see, if you count it from the the first Holy Day of Unleavened Bread, which always has to be the 14th of Abib, it would always come on a set day of the month, but it doesn't. That's what I was trying to express. It can come on any day of the month, uh, but it always has to be on... A Sunday. And we'll see that as we go through here. So in Leviticus 23, now, and you might put a marker here and one back in Joshua 5 so you can get back and forth easily because we may go back and forth several times. Uh, and here is the reason we do. When he starts discussing Pentecost down here in verse 10 Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you become into the land which I give you. To answer a question, you need to know who, what, why, where, when, how, and how. Those six things, elements, have to be included to understand the whole of something. The when is answered here. When you become into the land. Now, it doesn't put anything off. Deuteronomy 12 is brought up to try to get involved in this count, and it really isn't applicable. We might go there if we have time. But there he does mention, when you come into the land, there are certain things you are to do, but he qualifies it. And he says, these things you are to do after I establish my name in a place. And the context is of the holy days that they would go up to Jerusalem three times in the year or during the holy day seasons and do their sacrifices there. But this article that's floating says that Deuteronomy 12 absolutely forbids them to do their sacrifices anywhere else but Jerusalem and apply it to Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 when they came into the land. But Deuteronomy 12 is clearly established as something further down the line. The things he tells them there, they did not have to do immediately. God worked out their entry into the promised land over a period of time. He even said, I'm not going to drive everybody out immediately because the wild beasts would increase and wipe you out. So I'm going, to send, I'm going to get them out slowly. They had to go. But God was working things out over a period of time. Now, that's an important concept when some of the arguments against what I'm going to say today come up. Did you, when you were baptized, circumcised of the heart, become totally holy immediately? Have you yet? It takes time. God did not circumcise them on the the hill of the foreskins there in Joshua four, and they become holy immediately. Didn't happen. Things had to be worked out. All right, let's let's start into this. We'll get to some of those things later. When you come into the land which I give to you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. So when they come into the land, they are to do certain things, and we'll read some more of what they're to do. We need to go to Joshua 5, ultimately here, to see what they did when they went in the land, and when they did it. That is important, because that is the parallel scripture to this, right? He says, when you go into the land, this is a focus... So, then we need to go to Joshua 5 and see what they did when they went into the land and if it followed the instructions given here. So, we read the instructions and then we read the actions taken by them. Those need to coincide for Joshua to be fulfilling what God had told them in Leviticus 23. And I think we shall see that they perfectly fit together. Not all details are given. Are they needed? If God gave all details of every occurrence that is mentioned in the Bible, do you know how big the Bible would be? You couldn't put it in the Library of Congress, nor would you carry it around under your arm. Sometimes He gives only very brief mention to major events. How much time does he spend on Noah and the flood? Not very much. So he doesn't give all the details. But he has to give us the essentials that are necessary if we're to do what he told us to do. And I think we'll find that that is the case. So when you come in and reap the harvest... You shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits. Now we know from other places, the sheaf, as we'll read a little later on, the sheaf had to be waved before they could begin the harvest. Well, the sheaf was the first part of the harvest, okay? But they couldn't eat of the things of the land until they had waved that. So that's the first order of business once you get down to Wave Chief Sunday. Now it says, your harvest, to the priest. An argument is made by some that that wasn't their harvest. Uh, The Canaanites had planted that, and it wasn't their harvest. There is a place that talks about that which you plant, you harvest. And they would do that year by year. But when they came into the land and began to possess it, was that not then theirs? It was not in the hand of the Gentile anymore, it was in their hand. Now, we could argue that is a technicality. That's why I stress it is important to see what they did, and then we will know with what. Did God accept a wave sheath of the grain that had been grown in the land of Canaan once they got there? That's a question that we need to be sure and get answered. And he shall wave the sheath before the Eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And here's where the confusion really begins. Which Sabbath? First Holy Day? Sabbath before the first day of Unleavened Bread? Sabbath on the seventh day of unleavened bread with the wave sheaf falling outside, which is it? To just read (coughs) that verse would not clarify it. To just read that verse alone doesn't tell you, does it? That's why some do it on the holy day. That's why some do it on the Sabbath before and some the Sabbath after. Now, does God want to leave us in that confused state? Don't think so. What follows will give us uh, clarification. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf, a he-lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering to the Eternal. And the meal offering thereof shall be two tenths deal of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire to the eternal, for as sweet as a sweet savor, the drink of the offering thereof shall be of wine, and the fourth part of an hen. So they were to do two things there. They were to offer the wave sheaf, and on the same day they were to give a different offering to God. But it was the same day. So which offering? The wave sheaf offering or the other offering we might be discussing has no uh, effect upon the count because they were both done on the same day. See what I mean? Now here's some important instruction that affects the count directly. Verse 14, "...and you shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears..." Until the self-same day that you have brought an offering to your God. And that would mean the wave sheaf and the other offering just mentioned. So which offering it is there doesn't matter. They were both on the same day. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So, the, the context and the timing here is when you enter into the land. Almost immediately, the first thing he brings up here is the wave sheaf. It's the important thing to do and to begin a count toward Pentecost. And they were not to eat that which they harvested of the land or that which had been stored up and parched or was in storage, anything of that land until they had brought that wave sheaf. An argument was made that, well... When they were on the other side of the river, uh, they must have been eating of some of the things that were there because they had been told, Make victuals or provisions for yourselves because we're going across the river in four days. So it says, Well, they were already eating of the land. No, they weren't. The border was the river. What they had eaten before they crossed the river had nothing to do with what they were to do when they went into the land. Okay? Is there anything in the Scripture that says they were not to eat anything but manna and quail during that 40-year sojourn? I can't think of anything. doesn't say that. If they happened to come across some pine nuts, if they happened to catch some grasshoppers, Okay, that's what you fancy. (laughs) If they wanted some dandelions and they came across a patch by a spring, they could eat it. They could eat anything they found that was clean along the way. They needed to be given manna and quail because in the wilderness, as they marched, there wasn't enough to sustain them, and God took care of that. But He didn't forbid them eating anything else until they cross the river. And he says, when you come into the land, when did they come in? When they crossed the river. Then the instructions began to apply, and he tells them here, don't you eat anything there until you've offered that wave sheath. Okay? <coughs> now, verse 15 is very important. And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheave of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Now this right here explains that you can't use the annual Holy Day, the first day of Unleavened Bread, to start your count. Because that can fall on any day of the week. But the Pentecost count is very specific here. You start on the day after the Sabbath, Sunday that you wave the sheaf, and you count seven Sabbaths, 49 days, and the next day is Pentecost. So the day started, I, I mean the count started, had to be after a weekly Sabbath. On a Sunday, Christ was waved as the wave chief on a Sunday. That complied. You can't start it if you have a holy day on, say, the first annual Sabbath of the days of unleavened bread. That happens to be on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. You can't start the count then because it does not say count seven weeks. It says, count seven Sabbaths. And the total number you will come up with is 50. Not 53, not 47, 50. So if you always count after a Sabbath, and it has to be a weekly Sabbath, then you'll always come out on Sunday. And that's what this says clearly. And it does say... On the morrow after the Sabbath in verse 11, that word there does mean the weekly Sabbath. So, they count from a weekly Sabbath. But nowhere yet have we seen, or has it said, that it has to be a Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. Clear? Does anybody see where it says that? I've not found it ever. And I've studied this pretty carefully for about two weeks now. It's not in there. But people say that. The Bible says you must count from the weekly Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. It doesn't say it. It does say you'll have to count from a weekly Sabbath. Now, the question is, which one? The one just before the days start or the one at the end? That is the question that is on the table. That's where the confusion lies. That we must find the answer to within these two chapters. We've got to do it. It's got to be in there. Otherwise, God is, I don't know, Alzheimer? Incompetent? Something. To tell us to do something and then not give us specific instruction? We're already reading some specific instruction, aren't we? Count from a Sabbath. Seven Sabbaths are complete, and the next day would be Sunday. So that's 50 days. Count 50. (coughs) It is sometimes called the Feast of Weeks because you count seven weeks. But the Scripture is very clear that you start the count after a weekly Sabbath, always, in order to count seven Sabbaths. If you start on a Tuesday, you won't come up with seven Sabbaths. You'll come up with seven Tuesdays. Maybe seven weeks, but it won't be seven Sabbaths. See the difference there. Okay. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days... And you shall offer a new meal offering to the eternal. Now, the morrow after the Sabbath would be the daylight portion following the end of the Sabbath at sundown, a weekly Sabbath. So the morrow after the Sabbath is Sunday, 50 days. Now, let's go back to Joshua 5, actually 4 first. And it describes them putting twelve stones, one from each tribe, on the bank as a memorial to God after they crossed the river uh, in verse 8 of chapter 4. And what I've already said in 14, On that day the Eternal magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. Then he gave them uh, instructions, Uh, and told them to come up out of Jordan in verse 17. And then in verse 19, it tells when. The people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So the tenth day of the first month is when they crossed the river. Now, what did God then command to happen immediately. Circumcision. Uh, Verse 2, At that time the Eternal said to Joshua, At that time, that was on Monday, not Monday, that was on the tenth day, I'm trying to say, of Abib. At that time, we already saw they just came out, and at that time he said, Make sharp knives and circumcise again the, the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. So immediately upon entering the promised land, God said, circumcise all the males. Remember in Exodus 12, he had said that they had to be circumcised to keep the Passover. And any strangers who sojourned with them had to be circumcised or they could not keep the Passover. So that was an important thing. Realize that they had not kept the Passover for 40 years. God had not led them to do that. Now, he had told them in Exodus 12 that this is to be a memorial, it is to be an ordinance, it is to be a feast forever to keep the Passover. Didn't he? That they would tell their children of it. And that they had to be circumcised to keep it. You know what he did? He held that instruction in abeyance, did not make them follow it for 40 years. It was not his purpose for them to keep the Passover during those 40 years. They had rebelled against God, they had murmured. We don't do that anymore. Nobody murmurs anymore, do they? It's not a word that we use in English today. So nobody murmurs. We're safe. We just whine, complain, and gripe. There's a difference. That's a different issue. Anyway, do you think that God, having led Israel out of Mitzrayim on the selfsame day he sent them in, shows how God thinks? He is very attuned to specifics. He has an exact course, an exact order of how he wants something done. Now, he had preplanned for a long time to bring them into the land at a specific time for his purposes. He didn't just look down one day and say, Ah, right, let's let them go on in. No matter what day it is, just send them in. No. It's very carefully orchestrated. And I will show you that it was orchestrated in such a way that that entry would start a cycle of counting Pentecost, and that it was the exceptional year of a Saturday night Passover that he led them in. He pre-planned this for a long, long time and got it exact. And when we prove that, we will prove whether you keep the Sabbath before as the starting for Pentecost count, or whether it is the last day of unleavened bread with the wave sheaf falling outside. We can prove it. We shall proceed to do so. So God addressed that issue the very first year and planned it that way. Now, why circumcise them or give the order to do it? It doesn't say whether they got it all done <coughs> that day, and I don't think Joshua did all of it anyway. I'm sure he delegated the chore to a lot of different people. I mean, you know, you've got tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of men there, and and Joshua was going to whack them all himself? No, it, it takes a little while to get them all lined up and to get the job done, especially when they flinch and pull back, and what on, you know, wah, 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 I don't to get in all that. So, to circumcise that many men, it had to be more than just Joshua, but he was the leader, and he was the one given the instruction. And God said, Get knives. He didn't need knives uh, himself, one would have done for him, but he had help. Now, why? Did God cause this? He goes on to explain in the next few verses, and I won't take the time to just go through all of it, but he explains again that they had been circumcised coming out of Mitzrayim, and that now they hadn't been circumcised these 40 years, which means they wouldn't have been keeping the Passover. Now before they're to keep the Passover, and it's imminent, it's coming, because this is the 10th of Abib, 10th day of the first month. So in order for them to take the Passover, they had to be circumcised ahead of that. Now some people have not wanted to accept what Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 actually say. So they say, well this could have been the second Passover, because they'd have been too sore to keep the Passover and kill a lamb after having been circumcised a few days before. That's not what it says, and that's not what God was doing. God caused them to be set aside, sanctified, circumcised of the flesh, and set aside as his people. That was the sign between Israel and the Gentiles at the time. So he was preparing them to keep the Passover. And did God misunderstand? Did he miscalculate how long it would take for them to get over it? Oh man, I goofed there. I guess they better take the second Passover. Come on. Is God like that? No. He had them come in on that day, and the first thing He did was say, Joshua, get your knife out. We're having a party. He was preparing them to keep the Passover. I knew a guy that got circumcised in Ambassador College one time. And next day, he was in class. He walked real funny and stiff and gingerly. And all the girls asked him, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he wouldn't tell them. He'd just say, I've got a problem. He told the guys, who in turn, I'm sure, told the girls. I might have. Uh, I don't remember. Probably knowing me. But the point was, he was up walking around. Gingerly, but he was walking. Now, Gordon, at Bible study last week, (coughs) gave me an anecdote. that during his time in the Navy, and be sure I quote you right, he said that for whatever reason, there were men who were circumcised on the boat uh, in the Navy. And they reported for duty the next day. Correct? I don't know whether they were given light duty or their normal duties or just what, but it didn't put them in bed for a month, okay? They were sore. They were a little timid, perhaps, and not as robust as normal. But they did report for duty. I looked it up in Wikipedia. And you can look it up. I have the reference here somewhere. I don't want to go there. But look up circumcision in Wikipedia and go down about the third heading or so on. And it says there is no indication that there is undue uh, debilitation as a result of circumcision. That they have seen nothing to show that it was that debilitating over a long period of time. They try to get you up after open heart surgery now four or five days later. Circumcision isn't quite that. So, even there it says it, and I looked up some more just to be sure, of men who are on the internet who, for whatever reasons, decided to get circumcised, converted to Judaism, or had a disease problem, or a discomfort problem, or wanted to look like the other guys in the locker room, or whatever reason they gave, they decided to be circumcised. And not one of their stories ever mentioned any great pain that they were in, or any rehabilitation process required a great deal of time. It does say here in Joshua that they went back to their tents uh, until they were healed. But it doesn't say it took a long time. And there is nothing that I have seen or read or researched that indicated that. The point is, God had planned this and He knew how long it would take. He knew that they got circumcised on the 10th or 11th that they would be able to keep the Passover on the 14th, and indeed they did. Now, another point to consider in that is Joshua and Caleb were not eligible for the second Passover, right? They'd been circumcised coming out of Mitzrayim, so they would they couldn't have kept it. They had to keep the first one. None of the women would have been qualified to keep the second Passover. They didn't have to be circumcised. So they were healthy. They were fine. Had to be the first Passover. Now, in one sense, it doesn't matter. Our subject here is the count to Pentecost. Now, if you were in childbirth or way far away or something and met the conditions for keeping the second Passover... You didn't start the Pentecost count from then. You started it from the real Passover. And everybody else did that. You could only take the Passover the second month if you were in the middle of childbearing or some such thing. And truly couldn't keep it. Then you were allowed to. But you would have been out of sync with the Pentecost count because it always began the day after a Sabbath, during, or not during, I almost said it, during the Days of Unleavened Bread. The original scripture says that, once again. Okay, <clears> they <throat> got the circumcision done. Verse 9, And the Eternal said to Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Mitzrayim from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. And in Hebrew that means rolling. He rolled off the reproach. What reproach? He had brought them out. He had set them aside Passover. He had killed the firstborn of Mitzrium and not theirs. So there was no reproach there in that sense. What was the reproach? Murmuring, complaining, uh, rebelling, griping, talking against Moses. And that reproach kept those men from entering the promised land. After they died, the tribes, Israel, were allowed to move in. So the reproach was taken away from the disobedience that had been done there. And the Passover is important to that because the Passover pictures the forgiveness of our sins through Christ. So God planned this so they would come into the land... And almost immediately have the Passover. When you take away the reproach, Christ's Passover, Christ's death is what takes away our reproach. So God had his purposes and his symbolism and everything all lined up. All his ducks were in order, okay? He was going to get this right. Now, what did they do? We'll find in chapter verses 10 through 12. Keep in mind the instruction we read in Leviticus 23, and we might refer back to it. But let's see what they did. Verse 10, The children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. They had been selected on the tenth day. The Passover lamb was always selected on the tenth day. Christ was selected on the tenth day, went into Jerusalem. So they were selected on the tenth to be a holy, set aside people of God. Circumcised, even as we are circumcised of the heart today, not of the flesh. So God made sure that was done because He had chosen them as the lambs of God, if you will. God's sheep. God's holy nation. So they were selected on the 10th. (coughs) Their sin was rolled away at Passover on the 14th. God had it all orchestrated way ahead of time. Now, it's clear they kept the Passover on the 14th, right after they came in. Uh, you can prove that into verse 12. They did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. It wasn't the next year or the year after. It was that year. Now, there was some instruction, remember, in Leviticus 23, that they were not to eat the parched corn, the green ears, anything of the land of Canaan until they had offered the wave sheaf. Clear? All right, let's read verse 11. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the self same day. They had to wave the sheaf the day after Passover, which had to be a Saturday, a weekly Sabbath. Because waving that sheaf began the count to Pentecost. Seven Sabbaths plus one day, and you have Pentecost. So to comply with Leviticus 23, they had to start the count the day they waved the sheaf. Somebody says, well, they didn't wave the sheaf here. It doesn't say they did. Let's go back to Leviticus 23 and see what God's instruction was and what Joshua then would have done because he was a faithful servant of God and intended to follow the instruction. Okay? Verse 10, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you become into the land which I give you. Now God began this process as soon as they got there, preparing them for Passover on the 10th, Passover on the 14th. When you come into the land... And reap the harvest thereof. And they had to reap just enough for a wave sheaf. Okay? Of the first fruits of your harvest, you shall wave the sheaf before the eternal to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. We've already seen from verse 15 that it had to be the day after a weekly Sabbath in order to count seven Sabbaths. So, it had to be a weekly Sabbath. In this particular case, it would have had to have been a Saturday night Passover. That was the weekly Sabbath that occurred the day before they were to wave the sheaf. Now, it does not say in so many words in Joshua 5, 11, that they waved the sheaf. Does it? No. No. But does it, does it tell him to do it the day after the Sabbath in Leviticus 23, and would not Joshua have been aware of that? Yes, he would have. Very acutely aware of it. And they had been told, in verse 14, "...you shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering to the Eternal your God." It'll be a statute forever. So they were expressly forbidden to eat of the corn or the grain, the food, the produce of the land, until they had waved the sheaf the day after the Sabbath. So, it says, they ate of it in Joshua 5. That means that they would have had to have waved the sheaf in order to fulfill the instruction of Leviticus 23. And we're talking about the same year. We're talking about the same time frame. When you come into the land. An unqualified. When you come in. And it wasn't the next year. It wasn't the second Passover, and it wasn't the next year. End verse 12. Or, well, let's read verse 12. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So it had to be the year that they came in, the day after the 14th of Abib. And it couldn't have been the second Passover... Because they were not all qualified to do that, and God had made sure they get there in time to have themselves set apart by circumcision so that they could. It all happened in that five-day space, from the 10th to the 14th. <clears throat> that appears to me to be quite clear. It had to be that way. It couldn't be any other way. They were to begin the count right after the Sabbath. So, what this tells us is that had to have been a Saturday night Passover because the Pentecost count had to start on a Sunday. And it says they were to do it the day after Passover. The morrow after Passover the same day they waved the sheaf. That would have been a Sunday. So the previous day would have been a what? Been a Saturday. And that was before the Passover. That would have made the day of the wave sheaf that year on the 14th a Sunday. Christ ascended on a Sunday. That's the day he was waved. Now, his... Situation would show that normally speaking, you do keep it or start to count on the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread because he was killed on a Wednesday, raised on a Saturday afternoon, and the next day was the wave sheep and it was within the days of unleavened bread. So that year, clearly, they counted from the Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread, which was not the last day of unleavened bread. Passover was Wednesday, so the days of unleavened bread were still going on when the Sabbath came and he was offered. So, normally speaking, that's the case. The confusion comes then when you have a Saturday night Passover. What's the subject here? It's Pentecost, it's the wave sheaf. The, sa- the question is not the weekly Sabbath. You do need to establish in this context which weekly Sabbath you're counting from. But the wave sheaf in the Pentecost is what is the context. That's what this is all talking about. So what's more important to be consistent? The wave sheaf always must fall within the days of unleavened bread. That's what Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 combined clearly show. It has to be that way. So the first year they came in, God started the cycle with the odd or exceptional year. Thereafter, whatever day the Sabbath was, as long as the wave she fell within the days of Unleavened Bread was what counted. And he showed that he would count from the weekly Sabbath just prior to the first day of Unleavened Bread to make sure that that occurred. Another point came to mind. It pleased me. It'll come back here in a minute, I think. What time is it? I still have a little time. <clears throat> Let's go quickly to Deuteronomy 12. I want to show you that when I mentioned it. Uh, but here are statutes and judgment. And he says... Verse 5, But the place which the eternal your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put His name there, even to His habitation shall you seek, and there shall you come, and bring your tithes and your vows and your offerings and so on, and eat before the eternal your God. Now, when does He tell us to come and eat before Him? Three times in a year. So, He's, he's addressing the holy days Here's the subject. Verse 8, <coughs> You shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Even under Moses, with the order and organization that was within Israel, there were still a lot of stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious people. There were people who did not always look to Moses. In fact, tried to destroy Moses, and God took care of that. So, you had that element. Now, verse 9, "...for you are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the eternal your God gives you, but when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the eternal your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, There shall be a place which the eternal, your God, shall choose, and there I command you to bring all of these things that he told them to bring. He does not forbid them here to offer sacrifices at other places which they had been doing in the wilderness. He does not expressly forbid it, as this paper says. He says, I will appoint a place, and then you are to keep all your festivals, your high days the things that I require of you there. Now, first it was Shiloh for a while, and then later on he made it Jerusalem. But the point I want to make here is that Deuteronomy 12 shows that there were some things God required immediately, there were some things he did not require immediately, there were some things that were put off for a period of time until your enemies are gone. When they came in in Joshua 5, their enemies weren't gone. God had not designated Jerusalem. So they were not required to follow Deuteronomy 12 when they came into the land on the 10th of Abib the first year. Not required at all. That was only later. Does God require perfection of you five minutes after you're baptized? Or does it take time? Some of us have been working on it now for 40, 50, 60 years and still aren't there. So holiness occurs over a period of time. Were they a set-aside people after having been circumcised? Yes. Were they in full compliance with everything God had said? No. No. Let's address this paper just for a few minutes. I didn't want to have to, but since it's been circulated, I think I need to rip it to shreds a little bit. <coughs> uh, some of you know what it is. I don't want to accuse anybody. I don't want to put anybody down. Uh, I just want the issue. So that's all that matters. But this article spends more time on what, or the focus is more on other things rather than what it does say. And it assumes something like saying that the Bible says you have to keep, count the Pentecost from the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread. He says that in so many words. The Bible says, no, it does not. Most years it will start after a Sabbath within the days of Unleavened Bread. But some years it does not, and we've already seen that. And after the weekly Sabbath, just prior to the first day of Unleavened Bread, what it does establish is that the wave sheaf must always follow consistently within the days of Unleavened Bread. That's the consistency of God. You can't have both consistent. Sabbath within... And wave sheep within. It's got to be one or the other because of the odd year and how it falls. And the subject here is the wave sheep and the Pentecost, not a weekly Sabbath. That's what we're counting. <coughs> uh, let's see. First page. It says Scripture contains no alternative counting method when Passover occurs on a weekly Sabbath. Yes, it does. We just saw it. He said the account should be modified when a Sabbath, Passover occurs. Uh, No, not modified. Just followed. Just follow what we just read. We're not modifying anything. We're just doing what God said. Where's the modification in that? You modify it if you change what God instructs in Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 and keep it from with the wave sheaf falling outside Passover or the Days of Unleavened Bread. That's when you modify it. Then he talks about Israel being a holy nation. That's fine. Circumcision set them aside. Uh, He says, God expected them, his uh, uh, ceremonies, to be followed exactly as instructed because each detail fits precisely within his purposes for his relationship. And I say, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, if Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 combined give us specific instruction, then we'd better follow it. It's very simple. I agree with him on that point. Then he quotes Dr. Dorothy from uh, 1974 when they had a doctrinal committee that was examining this issue. And it says that some brethren are concerned over the alleged arbitrary decision, especially since Joshua five ten through eleven seems to show the Israelites counted that Pentecost from Sunday, the high day with an unleavened bread. And then he takes exception to Dr. Dorothy and says that uh, well, let's see, I'll read it. It appears Dr. Dorothy was sensitive to some people's skepticism, otherwise, Why did he emphasize seems? Did he draw attention to the word because he felt that the doctrinal committee was banking on something vague, assuming some points and reaching a conclusion it could not fully justify? That is utter and total speculation. What was in Dr. Dorothy's mind? He's simply speculating. He doesn't know, but he's using it to try to make his point when he doesn't know what Dr. Dorothy was thinking. Now, I knew Dr. Dorothy, and he was not a willy-nilly... Uh, read to be shaken in the wind. He was very definitive and definite about what he believed and what he taught and what he knew. He was that kind of person. He was not indecisive. However, this was not his final decision to make. He was a leader on the committee and he had studied it out and he made a report. Now to me, I would... Speculate on a different thing that was in his mind. My thought would be this. He did not make the final decision, so he would present it, not saying dogmatically, this is the way it's got to be, this is the way it shall be, and you must follow it. Because the Armstrongs had to make the decision. So instead, he wrote, this is what it seems like to me. Here it is. You make the decision. Now, is my thought, my speculation, just as good as this paper? Take your pick. (laughs) I don't know what was in his mind for sure. But I know you can't say that because he used the word seems that he was willy nilly or didn't know. He said that's what it seems to say to me. So Dr. Dorothy studied it very carefully and came up with the same conclusion I have. That's what it says. When you combine the two. You can't separate them and get the whole story. God says, when you come into the land, and then you go examine what they did when they got into the land. And you have to fit them together, because they had to have done what God said. Okay? He says, can you build an important spiritual doctrine on a guess? No, you'd better not. Now, the guess here with him was, I guess it must have said that you have to count from a Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. That's a guess, because it ain't in there. In fact, it's a false assumption. Notice that thus far the chapter makes no mention of an altar, no mention of a priest, no mention of the offerings God commanded to accompany the waving of the sheaf, no mention of a harvest, and no mention of the waving of the sheaf, speaking of Joshua 5. So, so what? It does say that they ate of the corn that day. Therefore, they had to have kept the Sabbath before and offered the wave sheaf the next day. And it had to be a Saturday and a Sunday in order to count seven Sabbaths and then have the 50th day be Pentecost. Had to be. Couldn't be any other way. Okay? Did they have the Ark of the Covenant? Did they have the tabernacle that they would built? Did they have the priests who were following their courses? Yes, they did. Why does it need to mention the priests? That's a given. They were there. They had made an altar of sorts of twelve stones when they came across the Jordan. So, did they have to wait until the enemy was subdued per Deuteronomy 12 in order to sacrifice to God? no. That was speaking of a specific times they were to come to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. And they were to start doing that (coughs) after certain conditions had been met several years later. But this instruction in Leviticus 23 was immediate and it doesn't say a few years later. It says, when you come into the land, and God brought them in Passover time. No mention of the offerings. Why should it? He told them do it. They must have done it. He just summarizes it there. He says what they did. They kept the Passover and they ate the next day. Therefore, they must have done what was necessary to qualify them to do so. Or, if all the conditions could not have totally been met, I think it is quite clear that God's Intent was they keep the Passover and the wave sheaf and start the count to Pentecost from that time. So, if they did not manage to meet every detail of all instructions throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God could have waived some of that, could He not? They were coming in to start a process. Everything was not totally lined up yet, perhaps. Now, would they, years thereafter, eat of that which they had planted themselves? Yes, they would. That was not available this particular year because the harvest that they would make would have been something that someone else had planted. Now, if that had been important to God that year, would he not have brought them in in December or January and given them time to plant a crop? No, he wanted to bring them in the self same day or the self same period of time that they came out of Mitzrayim. That was important to him, and that's what he caused to happen. Now, if all the other instructions that would be there from the succeeding years were not in place, God did the most important thing that He had on His mind. And He might have been willing to waive certain things. Didn't He tell them, you were to come up to the place I designate to keep the feast, but I'm going to waive that for a while? I'm going to waive that until these conditions have been met? Now that was His instruction. You do this, and don't you fail. But, I'm waving some of it until this has been done. Now that shows right there that God can and will do that at times. So if they did not meet every condition given to the letter that first year, God very possibly could have waived some of that to get his most important purposes done. He wants you and me to be perfect, having, be, keeping everything that he tells us to do by the time of the first resurrection, doesn't he? We're not going to make it, brethren. He's going to have to waive some things. He's going to have to forgive some things. With every last one of us, isn't he? Is he big enough to do that? I think so. Isn't that what Christ's life and sacrifice and death were all about, is waving some things? Was not He waved on a Sunday for us? Our forgiveness and God's mercy. So, that brings us back here. Every detail of every instruction for life in general going forward did not have to be met. So if there are some small deficiencies in their qualification, God could have easily waived it. Not saying He did. They may have met every requirement. But it doesn't appear that they did. They did eat of that which the Gentiles had planted, the Canaanites. It became their harvest, yes, once they took it. But they had not planted it. But God said, this year... Do it anyway when you come in. So obviously, he must have said, this is what's important, this can wait. Okay? I don't have a problem with that. With you and me. This is important, this can wait. Some of our sins, some of our attitudes are bigger than others. Some we can kind of, he'll kind of put on hold and say, we'll get to that, but you really need to fix this now. Get this done. Then we'll talk about that. That's what Deuteronomy 12 does. But what's important is what God instructed in Leviticus 23, and then go to Joshua 5 and see what they did. And they did do it the way he said. They must have given an offering, and they must have waved the sheaf. And they had to do it after a Sabbath, and it couldn't have been the first day of unleavened bread Sabbath, because that would have that changes, and you can't count Pentecost from a Tuesday or a Thursday. It has to be from a weekly Sabbath. But this shows very clearly that that week or that year, it had to have been a Saturday, a Saturday, a Passover Saturday night because they waved the sheaf the next day and started the count to Pentecost. First day of unleavened bread. You'll notice also in there it says they ate unleavened bread. Passover day. Sunday was Passover that year. Why did they eat unleavened bread? If I had been out eating manna for the last 40 some years and had approached the Jordan... And if there was food there on that side of the river before they went into the land, and there had been corn and wheat and barley, whatever grains, and there had been yeast, sourdough, I would have wanted some puffy bread, wouldn't you? If they started eating stuff on that side of the river, they'd have probably eaten leavening. And the day that they waved the sheaf, and they ate of the parched corn of the land. It could have been a holy day. And they could have used leaven had it not been the days of unleavened bread. Leaven was available if parched corn was available. Why not let your bread rise and have it on that day? Now, this article also makes a point, said, well, uh, the Jews say that you could never wave a sheaf or, let's say you could What does it say? Oh, you couldn't begin the harvest on a holy day. Where do you find that at the Bible? Where? It is not there. It is a Jewish tradition. You know what I think of Jewish traditions? I think you do. You know what God thinks of them? Snakes, beware the doctrine of the Pharisees, the leaven, doctrine of the Pharisees, their teachings. That is a Jewish rule. It isn't a godly rule. It is in the Bible. Now, did they have to start getting out there and harvesting a bunch of grain and start the actual big harvest? No. If it was a holy day, they could have taken enough to wave as a sheaf. That would not have violated the holy day. And you could cook food on a holy day. That's clear through other scriptures. So, if they ate of the parched corn, they didn't eat the fresh ears that day. They didn't go out and harvest. They ate the old corn. And they could have put new leavening in it had it not been the first day of unleavened bread, but it was. So they had unleavened cakes. Someone tried to make the point that in the Hebrew it doesn't say unleavened bread. It just says unleavened. Or in the New Testament, it doesn't say unleavened bread. It's a different Greek word. Oh, come on. It says their dough was on their backs. Do you have sheep dough? Do you have broccoli dough? A little leaven leavens the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5. Are we talking about bread products? I don't care whether it's cookies, crackers, bread, whatever. Whatever is leavened that rises is what he's talking about. I don't care whether they use the exact Greek or Hebrew word for bread. Dough is bread dough. Don't get me started. What else here? I think we've pretty well covered it. Well, here's one. Deuteronomy 12 absolutely forbids the erection of an altar for the normal ceremonial worship of God until the land had been conquered. Where does it say that in Deuteronomy 12? It doesn't. It just says, speaking of the holy days, and that's the subject through the whole chapter basically, you're not to offer those things until I designate a place. You're not to do it anywhere you want to, but I'll designate a place. That doesn't mean that their normal sin offerings and all those other things could not be done elsewhere during that period of time. But the holy day stuff was to wait until God had designated a place. That's what the whole subject of Deuteronomy 12 is about. So you can't read stuff into Scripture that isn't there. But you better read the Scripture and see what it does say and go by that. So that's why when I go through Leviticus 23, I say, what does God tell them to do? Then I go to Joshua 5, and it shows what they did. And it fits together perfectly. And that's how we count Pentecost. This year, we had a Saturday night Passover. Therefore, we start the count for Pentecost the next day, as Leviticus 23 and Joshua 5 show they did that year. In years, when it happens to fall, uh, the weekly Sabbath, within days of unleavened bread, not the last day, you do count from that weekly Sabbath. So it is a weekly Sabbath, but it does not say anywhere it has to be the weekly Sabbath within the days of unleavened bread. And when you understand that they kept it the Sabbath before and started the next day, that shows that consistently you will always have the wave sheep within the days of unleavened bread. We haven't used symbolism up to here, have we? Just what it said God told them to do and what they did. Now, if the wave sheaf is to fall then within the days of unleavened bread, wave sheep is offered for whom? The firstfruits. Those before Christ was born and those after So it cycles through those seven days so that it covers all 7,000 years of man's existence. But you prove the count before you add the symbolism. The symbolism does not give the answer how God says to count here does. Then symbolism is tied to that and fits and makes sense and gives you more understanding. But we don't base this on symbolism whatsoever and won't. It's on what God says and what they did. Combined, there's no other day it could have been. Couldn't have been Tuesday. Couldn't have been any other day but Saturday night. I hope that's clear and makes it simple. Just read what God said, see what they did, and that's the only answer you can come up with, and that's why it seemed that way to Dr. Dorothy. And then he handed it to the Armstrong and says, that's what it looks like to me. Make a decision. I think that was his attitude. Dr. Dorothy was a pretty smart man. Now, smart isn't always the answer, however. I've seen some pretty smart people that couldn't walk across the street without getting killed. But you're smart enough to read this if you focus on what is God saying. Everyone here is smart enough to see this. If you don't bring in a whole bunch of extraneous stuff and cloud the issue, the simplicity in Christ is pretty plain. And God, therefore, gave us instructions that anyone can follow on what to do and when to do it and how to go about it. Because He's God, and He wouldn't tell us to do something unless He provided a way for us to determine which Sabbath. Now, does He sometimes put things in a way that can confuse people? Christ said, He spoke in parables that they might be taken, snared, and deceived. So he wrote that one verse in Leviticus 23 in an ambiguous fashion. So you wouldn't know from, I think it's verse 11, which Sabbath he's talking about. You have to read the rest of it and bring Joshua 5 in and see what they actually did. And then it's clear which Sabbath it was. The one just before the days of unleavened bread. It also proves again that the Passover day, the 14th, is the first day of unleavened bread. Because they ate unleavened cakes on that day. We won't say unleavened bread, unleavened cakes. Okay, have it your way.